0: Shields, thank you so much for sitting down with the Georgetown Plug Policy Review. Thanks this for is, having me. This is Jake Ford, Israel is really Smith. Smith, the double intro. <laughs> um, we're really excited to sit down, pick your brain about your experience, both uh, in the field and also your time here at Georgetown. But our first question that we, we have to ask is... How does Georgetown stack up the George Washington University? Oh my goodness! Right <laughs> out of the gate.
1: Well, you know Georgetown didn't let me in. Really? I applied to Georgetown in 2003 and I got waitlisted. Wow. So I feel like I have to the give worst. it. I have to uh, give some props to GW because they actually accepted me. So, <laughs> you know, it is what it is. No, Georgetown's been great. Uh, <laughs> it's been wonderful to be on campus. The students are fantastic. I've been super impressed. With the level of conversation, the level of um, respect that's been shown in terms of, you know, having differing views. Obviously, I am more on the right side of the political spectrum than the majority of students. And so it's been really um, an interesting opportunity for me to have conversations with students who ask really intelligent, great questions, and and I think genuinely want to learn about just a whole array of issues. So it's been really nice.
0: Awesome. And from your taking a step back into like your your background was was politics something that you've always wanted to go into? Did was it was it in the family in the in the blood?
1: It was a little bit. Um, my dad was always really involved in state politics back in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, he was involved in John Ashcroft's um, AG races and then governors races and senate races, and then my mom actually ran a county exec race in St. Louis I when I was younger. And so it was kind of fun. And I've talked in a couple different. Um, publications about you know seeing my mom a a woman back in the 80s take part in a in a real way in politics was really great I think for me to see um and it was just something like and I know other people say this that are involved in politics but it was just kind of what we did I mean we you know walked in parades and we put yard signs up Mm -hmm. and we went to events and we you know helped people um canvas and so uh I could say I would say it was in my blood but I also say that I was just very naturally inclined to be interested so it was it was always pretty clear to me that's the path I wanted to take. Mm-hmm.
2: And I think that's really interesting because just in looking at your background, you have experience in all aspects of campaign, um, you know, whether it's fundraising, messaging, you know, get out to vote, digital strategy, mm-hmm. et cetera. And even McCourt, they had a class last semester, you know, Michael Steele, Scott Muehiser taught a class in campaigns, you know, campaign management and campaign strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, we went through all these different aspects. Which one is most important to you in today's, you know, campaigning, you know, which one would you say rates above all is most important for a candidate to get?
1: Oh, my goodness. That's a, <laughs> that is a loaded question. Um, look, I'm, I'm pretty on the record in my current position at the Republican National Committee is senior data advisor, mm-hmm. senior data and digital, but primarily data. And, um, you know, I, I believe that campaign decisions need to be informed by data. And the candidate at the end of the day needs to be true to his beliefs and be true to why he's running for office and be very straightforward with the electorate about um, who they're electing, what his positions are or hers and what they Mm -hmm. intend to um, do in Washington or in in the state house or wherever they may may end up working. Um, But I think in terms of effectively running a campaign, it is really imperative that whoever's making um, decisions on the campaign as it relates to expenditures for voter contact, that they're using data to understand what message works with what voter through what um, medium um, and, in in a lot of ways, figure out how to create universes within the electorate that you not tailor different messages to, but talk to somewhat differently because Mm -hmm. every voter cares about different things. And so if you just pick three things that you care about as a candidate and you just hammer those three things home, it may work for you or it may not. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you're going to go to Washington or you're going to the governor's mansion or you're going to go to the state house and deal with a whole array of issues. And so you now have an opportunity with with the ability to segment the voter population in a way to really more talk to voters about specifically they care about. Mm-hmm. And so to give a voter insight into, look, I know my three main principles of my campaign are X, Y, and Z, but I know you care about A, B, and C. And so let me talk to you about where I am on A, B, and C, and we may be aligned there. And I think there are a lot of campaigns that use that now. And so I think if you don't use that as part of your um, strategy, you're at a real disadvantage.
0: Interesting. I, I, have, I have a couple follow-up questions there, but I'm, I'm really curious, just from your time, because you, you were involved in the 2012 uh, election. And, I on mean, the Senate side. On the Senate side, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm curious of the the focus, and I mean, you know, big data surrounds us. Has that kind of proliferation and, like, focus on the use of data, the availability, especially in elections, is, is that something that you've seen particularly evolved Oh, and, absolutely. And, and do you think that that will be, will, will it disseminate down to the state, to the local, to the county level elections? Like, do you, do you think this is a, a trend that we cannot stop in a way?
1: So I think the way I would approach answering that question is, you know, we got beat in 2008 and in 2012, largely because of a num well, there were a number of issues, but from a camping infrastructure side, if you take the candidate out, because the candidates are the candidates, and you look at... The campaign that was built around these two individuals that were running, specifically in 12, I guess, Mitt Romney and, and Barack Obama. Obama had spent two years before 2008 and then the four years he was in office using hard dollars to build a data operation that was built and created to elect Barack Obama. Right. And they used, there was a campaign built operation, and it was really quite groundbreaking as it related to anything that we'd ever used politically before. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also a book called Groundbreakers that I really tout a lot that people that want to get into campaigns should read because I th- find it really interesting in that it's the Obama field team with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, which I totally get. Basically saying, look, these data guys are great, but if we hadn't been able to utilize that data on the ground, none of this would have mattered. Would have been a bunch of data in a data warehouse somewhere or in a cloud somewhere. And it, you know, lot we might have right, we may not have <laughs> been able to turn the voters out that we needed to, we may not have won <laughs> the election. And so data and ground game work hand in hand, but the point I wanted to make there was what we saw in 8 and 12 was a candidate built a data operation to elect a candidate. Mm-hmm. What we saw in after 2012 was the Republican National Committee, led by Reince was at the time, and actually my now husband, Mike Shields, did an autopsy of what happened in the 2012 election to Republicans because, look, we lost Senate seats, we lost the White House, it was not our not our shining moment. And so we spent a lot of time saying... How do we, as a party, build a data infrastructure and ecosystem that helps elect Republicans? Mm-hmm. Because what we were betting on, and we didn't know at the time, was that that you, that operation was built to elect Barack Obama, couldn't then go um, pivot else. and elect Hillary Clinton, or elect someone down ballot, or elect whomever. It's basically like, look, you built this operation to sell orange juice; it's not going to sell an F-150. Like, I'm just sorry; it's just not. Mm-hmm and at the end of the day, we took a big bet. We were called crazy a lot. We were called stupid a lot. We were called, you know, it's a pipe dream. You can't build a data operation at a party. You have to have a candidate behind it. We fundamentally didn't believe that. We also obviously didn't have a choice because we didn't have a candidate (laughs) at the time. Um, But we built an operation that we launched in 2012, or excuse me, in 2014 in the Senate races, where we used a program called Voter Scores, and the voter scores are a 1 to 100 assignment. Of all 190 million voters in the voter file. And what a voter score does is two main things you're, the voter's propensity to vote. Mm-hmm. So, will you vote or not? Mm-hmm. And how likely are you to vote for a Republican? And so, a lot of times it's not named ballot ID. It's if you were to go to the poll today, do we believe you're going to vote R or D? Because what you can do then is we can then use that data up and down the ballot and send it to campaigns, to your point, in the states. They're running for federal office, but also mm-hmm. for state office, for county office, et cetera, And they can take that data and they can tailor it to their candidate and their message and try and, and build their own, what I would call, pathway to victory, which is what we did for the oh, Trump campaign.
0: I, I'm certainly no Luddite, and I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of you know, the analytics and, and the usage of, of big data. But to take a step back, I'm, I'm from Western Pennsylvania, and, and Connor Lambs. Oh now, my gosh, and now, yes turn district and a, a lot of those voters that they may be papered over I, I would imagine in the in the noise of the data so they their propensity to score for 20 years ago democrats would have been very high it's a union stronghold 15 years later very strong on republicans i think they switched do you think there's a there's a chance for those analytics and the machine to to miss Opportunities. I mean, on, on the aggregate. I mean, I think the usage is unequivocally clear. But like, how how do campaigns yeah. focus on the, on the the So I think it's a really good maybe- thing to
1: bring up because I think Connor Lamb and Rick Saccone were an example of what we would call a hard a hard <laughs> election to um, not to predict, but to also voter scores are not also all excuse me, only used to predict an election, they're used as a tool throughout the election cycle to spend resources efficiently and effectively. Because the voter score will tell us issues you care about, you know, it, the consumer files labeled, like, laid over it, um, your voting records laid over it. So we have all these different mediums that we have on your, so like if, if, you're, if my name Katie Wall Shields is on a voter file at the RNC, and my score is next to it, there's also 132 more columns going out that have different data points on me. What car I drive, what my economic bracket is, who I voted for in the last couple of... Le- or, you know, if I voted in last couple of elections, who I vote in mm-hmm. primaries, my consumer file, et cetera. The problem I believe we had with Conor Lamb and Rick Saccone, and this is... I could be... I'm obviously could be in a minority on this. We basically had two Republicans running against each other. Mm-hmm. Conor Lamb was an anti-Pelosi, pro-gun, pro-life Democrat. Those don't exist. Very, that is a unicorn.
2: Very conservative Democrat. It right. Isn't even blue dog.
1: Right. And so... That is not dissimilar from what we saw in Kansas in 2014 with Pat Roberts, who had an independent run against him, which is another example when the voter score program at the RNC was wrong. Mm -hmm. I would say analytics do not do a good job. First of all, we've never actually tested these in a primary because there isn't the best interest of the party to use voter analytics against each other in a primary. So this is only a tool you get to use once you're the nominee.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: So we've never built this tool to in any way predict a Republican versus Republican election, which I know isn't really what Connor Lamb and Rick Saccone were, but issue was. by issue, <laughs> it kind of is. And so I think you saw a situation in Pennsylvania 18 where you had a unicorn of a candidate in Connor Lamb. Um, look, I think we've all, Rick Saccone was not the strongest candidate we've ever put forward in an election. And Connor
0: Lamb didn't have a, a, a left uh, primary challenge. Correct which I think would have maybe pushed him outside. He sat in the middle and could sit in the middle from day one. Correct. Yeah.
1: And I think that that, I think that that allowed our, or did not allow, excuse me, our analytics to be what I would call as effective as they normally are when we're running against more traditional Democrat.
2: So, so I want to pick up on a couple, that point broadly. Um, two things. You talked a little bit about the autopsy. You know, it seems that coming out of 2016 for better or worse, you know, uh, the Republican Party is running away from some of those things. Um, you know, particularly around immigration and broadening the electorate. You know, if you look at uh, studies and who's voting for who, you look at Alabama, you look at you know Pennsylvania to an extent, you look at some of the special elections. Uh, it, it seems the you know the Republican Party is becoming much more older, uh, much more homogeneous. You know, not as diverse. You know, electorate. You still have to get these people out to vote. You know, but the Guaranteed base, for lack of a better term, is older and and, you know, whiter, you know, et cetera. So you know, how do you? What do you think? Do you think that's a problem for the party moving forward? Um, you know, and what would you suggest? You know, kind of happens, you know, to kind of tim that a little bit, or is this a you know symptom of? the nominee and, you know, President Trump and him being seventy-one years old and liking all his seventy one year old friends. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think a couple things. I think first of all, um, when we did the autopsy in twenty twelve question, then if you ask someone, do you align with a Republican or a Democrat? Most minorities, if you ask them if you align with a Republican or a Democrat, they will say Democrat they will say Democrat. But if you give them a politician, mm-hmm. they are not it is not as clear that they always pick the Democrat over the Republican. And so we have a party branding problem for sure and we've dealt with that for years um and i think we need to continue to fight that fight i think immigration is a really good topic to bring up because i think immigration is a great example of a situation that has been that has been volleyed back and forth as part of poly party politics and the minorities in this country that have immigrated in have really suffered from because the policies that the president's putting forward now look very similar to policies democrats put forward 10 years ago mm-hmm. And we didn't want to give Democrats, Republicans didn't want to give Democrats on immigration, and Democrats now don't want to give Republicans on immigration. Because the terrifying thing to the opposing party is you will look like you get like you've solved this problem, and for the next two generations, these immigrant immigrant families, immigrant, you know voters will believe that mm-hmm. they, they not they don't owe you, but they're more, you know, endeared to you because of you you dealt with their problem.
2: The phenomenon of the civil rights where essentially Democrat for lack of a better word Linden- LBJ blew, Correct. you know, threw away Southern Democrats for a generation plus, you know, but also African Americans vote Democrat in droves because of these civil rights, in part because of the civil rights. Correct. And
1: no one talks about Abraham Lincoln and no one talks about other Republicans that did things preceding that. That is a defining moment for African Americans in this country, understandably so. And we believe that, and I believe Democrats believe the same thing, whatever party gets credit for solving this problem is going to reap big benefits from it. Mm-hmm. So if you listen, I actually did a speech a couple months ago to a group of um, folks that come over from, I think, largely from the UK and had business interests in the US and wanted to understand the geopolitical situation going on in the country and said, look, this immigration issue is like really, I mean, wow, this is very, um, it's kind of a lightning rod for you guys. And so I took a minute and I said, let me read you a quote. And I read a quote from a state of the union about immigration. And I read it and I said, what do you think about that? And they said, well, I think that's crazy. And it's, you know, that seems very close-minded and that seems incredibly anti-American to me. And I said, really? Because that's a quote from Barack Obama in 2013. That's not a okay. Donald Trump immigration quote. Um, and I think that goes to show that the message and the tone, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the messenger, excuse me, and the tone matter. And the policy, largely, both parties are in almost the same spot on. Correct. And so what I think is really interesting is, you know, the president's pretty much taken DACA off the table Um, And it's introduced a very merit based immigration system, which is very similar to Canada's immigration system, very, very similar to a lot of European immigration systems. Um, And the Democrats have have really tried to demonize that, uh, I think, somewhat unfairly. But I think it is a it is a partisan, you know, it's a volleyball. We're going to keep pushing back and forth and eventually the dam's going to break and someone's going to get credit for this. But we're going to I think the party in the minority is going to fight that as long as possible until they can't fight it anymore until the Green Party comes into right. right. Exactly. All so, mm-hmm. is this an right. <laughs> issue of pol-
2: the, you know, we're so polarized in these times? And to your point, you would think that, you know, it is largely similar policy. I, I think, you know, the, and even you think the simplest deal could be made. I think every halfway rational person would tell you funding for the wall for DACA is a simple sit at the table, make a deal, mm-hmm. both parties claim a. Win, win both parties lose <laughs> and everyone goes home but we're in the zero-sum game of if i don't win then i, I then won't you can't run win. home right you know is that basically the problem with immigration
1: i think it's getting caught in that in that whole cycle yes um and you know i think at the end of the day something's gonna break the logjam but I don't think at this moment we can we can know what that is. I think at some level we thought the DACA deadline would do it, and then the courts inter- interjected right. and caused a whole other delay, um, or not delay, but an ability to punt this again. And so eventually a deadline's going to come. But what I've noticed with the government, as we we're dealing with today, the government's going to shut down on Friday You're unless right. we pass a, a stopgap. Um, Congress yeah. operates on deadlines.
2: And they blow through them anyway. They're not
1: going to get that- <laughs> <laughs> The snowstorm's not going to help. No.
0: No. Maybe not. the
2: government won't shut down.
1: There you go. There you go. I have,
0: I have heard Chick-fil-A is having a record year because they're like one of the biggest caterers for whenever there's a shutdown. Yeah. So oh, you're kidding. So they're absolutely crushing it this quarter. Oh, that's awesome. Um, if our listeners buy Chick-fil-A, I'm <laughs> sure that's going to be some type of violation <laughs> of something out there. Um, I, I definitely I, I want to transition to your time at, at the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, Deputy Chief of Staff, uh, I... I've read, and I'm sure many of our, our listeners have i you, uh, Chris Whipple's Gatekeepers. So I'm oh, super yeah. interested in um, the, the role of a chief of staff, probably the hardest working position in the government, perhaps. Um, all the blame, none oh, of the God. glory. <laughs> it's, it's echoed throughout the book that it is imperative for the chief of staff to control not just information, but, but people coming in and out of the door. Uh, did, do do you kind of do you echo those sentiments that that the chief of staff needs to not only be on a personal relationship with whoever's in the Oval Office but also be able to kind of be the quarterback within the office and how, how do you kind of see after going from government to now outside of it how, how do you kind of see that evolving in today's kind of arena
1: I think historically, I mean, as evidenced by the interviews in in the book, that's been how the White House has operated. And I think um, every White House operates differently. I think the president came to D.C. under the context of I'm going to break some glass, I'm going to do things differently, and I'm, I'm a disruptor. And so I'm not going to play by the regular rules because I just listened to 63 million Americans tell me they're sick and tired of the rules mm-hmm. and they want to see something get done. And so I think um, it's taken D.C. a while to adjust to the way the president is going to uh, govern and is going to communicate. But I think largely the, his base and the people that voted for him are not indicating that they have any sort of issue with, with what he's doing. And mm-hmm. I think he's largely keeping true to who he said he was in the campaign. I mean, the one thing about the president that you'd have to give him credit for is he's exactly as advertised I mean, he tells you what he thinks. He's been very on the record about it. He's not bashful about it. He's not shy about it. You can make your own decision whether or not you agree with him. As an American citizen, you have the right to vote against or for him. But he's not going to get into office and do a 180 on you. All
2: right.
1: And so I think the challenge with the president is you've got a very successful businessman who's worked for himself in a privately held company for 50 years and is used to operating um, as a chief executive in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And trying to put restrictions around him because of how the White House has operated previously, I think is um, not going to be effective for him. And he's not going to appreciate that. And he's going to reject it. And so I think what Reince um, pretty accurately figured out, and I can't speak to General Kelly, was not there as the General's chief, um, was this is not going to be a status quo White House. And so I think uh, at the end of the president's eight years, I think what you'll see is a book written about how different the Trump White House was run mm-hmm. internally than than any White House we've ever seen.
0: And I think something that a lot of viewers today probably don't recognize is how many different chief of staffs other presidents. Mm-hmm. Had. I mean, Obama's went through three. Um, yep. Clinton went through a
1: bunch. Clinton went through. People really don't really forget how disruptive the Clinton administration was in terms of the scandals, in terms of. I was when I was inside the Trump White House. I had people all the time from D.C. tell me, "This is very similar to the first term of Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. Like, don't let anyone tell you that you know this is that they've never seen anything like this. We saw this in '92."
0: I think that that's really interesting because one one of the points I I just read over was Liam Panetta took over from, these OMB director and Hillary Bill um, and Al Gore sat him down basically kind of convinced him to take over as chief of staff. And he's largely credited with not just turning around the presidency in the second, uh, second term, but large part kind of design strategy. And he had a much more, um, he was called the, the velvet hand in the iron glove. So he, he didn't go around with this kind of, this air of uh, authority. He smoothed people over. Do you think it's, do you think, I mean, I'm not not to speak to General Kelly, but do you think there's some type of adjustment that would need to happen internally to to smooth things over with operationally within the, the Trump administration? I mean, from, from your time, both in the private sector and now into um, government service, is, is there any type of efficiencies that you, you really miss in one or the other?
1: Efficiencies that I miss. Yeah.
0: Or, or so, so any, any like takeaways that, I mean, like do you miss your time? And I mean, everyone always says that it's, I don't. it's rather, you know, it's, I mean, people burn out from it rather quickly. Well,
1: yeah. And the thing that I always talk about um, is, you know, my, I was chief of staff through the whole 16 cycles. So I did yeah. all the primary debates. People forget that we had 17 candidates that were already show throats all the time. Right. And as a political operative, you have to understand that all my friends were running all these campaigns. Mm. And so I was trying to like be the, Hey guys, like let's get along, which is a very time-consuming situation. Then the convention hit in July of 2016. We ran the convention, and then I was in New York four days, to five days a week from the convention until election day. And then I was in Mar-a-Lago November 9th through January 20th, and then I was in the White House January 20th through the end of through April. And so, it's really it was really a like almost a July to March stretch for me. Mm-hmm. And by at the end of March, I was like. I got to tap out. Like, I can't. I can't do this. Now, I will say about the government is that, and I think a lot of people told me this too, oftentimes people from the campaign that go into the government don't last that long because it's very frustrating to them. Right. And I would second that. And it has nothing to do with the president. It has nothing to do with the Trump administration. It's just the way government works. It is slow. It is, it is not built to move at a breakneck pace. And political operatives are much more used to quick decision-making, being more agile and getting things done in a, in Mm. a what I would call faster fashion. And so it was frustrating to me because the government just is too big to, to move that quickly. And so I found myself, um, not, and this is on my, on me, but not, did not enjoy trying to adapt to, to the slower pace because I I would, I would get frustrated by it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's on me. Some people are built to work in government and I, I mean, bless them because I found it to be challenging I am better in a, in a more political space and I enjoy that more. Um, but having said that, I re- obviously, I mean, it's everyone's dream to work on the white house. I would never trade that time for anything. The things I got to do was on air force one. I got to meet with foreign leaders. I got to, you know, set up the president's first foreign leader visit. Um, you know, I've spent countless hours with top administration officials with the Trump family, with the president. You um, got to be in the room for some really cool stuff. I got to be part of transition and help pick, the cabinet and help pick top officials in the government. So, I mean, I would not trade that experience for the world, but you know, by the time I left, I was, I was tired. I took, yeah, I took yeah. a lot of naps after that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: sure. So like you mentioned really quick, the government moves slow um, and it moves slow. And it's been moving slow and it was set up to move slow, you know, from our founders. And there's another conversation in that for another day, you know, but you know what the government also is, is quite untrusted right now. You know, there's a significant lack of trust, in public institutions yesterday, McCourt had the lead conference where they talked about, you know, the Baker poll. And they're going to do a new poll about, you know, figuring out trust in institutions and why people don't trust institutions. anymore. was an
1: important conversation.
2: Exactly. Um, and so one of the things that came up yesterday was that there were some suggestions to get back trusting government. You know, either getting rid of the two-party system, fixing gerrymandering, or providing transparency to campaign finance. Given those choices, which one would you tackle first and why? Gerrymandering. <laughs> why?
1: Uh, yeah. um, to your earlier point that polarization is a problem, I believe polarization has always been a problem in this country. It will always be a problem. It becomes a bigger problem when we when we draw district lines where both Republicans and Democrats are never worried about losing their seats,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they are rewarded for moving further to the right or to the left. Uh, if it were up... To, if, I shouldn't say if it was up to me. I would want to do some more research, but with my current experience, I believe that you should try and draw every district 50, 50 and try and elect people that therefore come home to the district and have to get something done because mm-hmm. they're not rewarded by the base necessarily of either party. And so I believe if you sent people to Washington and they believed every two years they get voted out of office, they didn't get something done, things would move faster and you have less, less polarization. Um, I'm a fan of the two-party system. When I when I look at a lot of other European governments that have multi-party systems, I think it even gets more convoluted because you have you have leaders of different parties going to go backroom strike deals. You have no idea what they're mm-hmm. making deals on. There's no way to know. Um, it's less transparent in terms of, you know, the platforms of those parties and who's made concessions on what and who you're voting for this party, but they're going to make a deal with this party and this party you don't agree with, but they may have to make a deal. So who knows in order to get power. Um, so I, the two-party system, I'm not... I'm not a uh, critic of in terms of campaign finance, you know, I, my start in DC was in, in finance. Um, I did field work when I was in Missouri, even when I was younger, but my first DC job was I was a finance person. And it's funny to me, people say increase transparency in, in finance because um, the only thing in, in political countries that aren't, isn't transparency force, which are, Anyone can set up a C4 and it's an issue advocacy group. You can't actually directly campaign for a candidate. You can talk all you want about debt. You can talk all you want about immigration. You can talk about what you want about North Korea. Pick an issue and you don't have to disclose who's paying for you to talk about that issue. Now, the Supreme Court has ruled that's your First Amendment right. That's up for debate, obviously. We, obviously, in this country, work if the Supreme Court gives a ruling, that's the ultimate. Answer in this country currently, but every other piece of of money or any every other dollar that goes into a campaign is reported within a 90 day window. And so I have a harder time when people come to me and say, "Well, there's no transparency in campaign finance." And I say, "Well, have you gone to fpc.gov? Because every single person's name, address, employer, occupation is listed, and next to how much money they gave, when they gave it, and who they gave it to." So my my comeback to the campaign financing is explain to me how much more transparency you would like. Now that's a different conversation between transparency and removing money from politics.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. But in this country, that's a really dangerous conversation for us to have. Cause you're starting to, again, I believe, take away your first amendment right. Or free, I mean, it really infringes upon that. And so that's where I think gerrymandering you're left with your only plausible option in our country. And I also think it solves the polarization problem simultaneously. Um, I think it, I think it helps transparency and and getting people to actually work together.
0: Yeah, well, it's a it's a really interesting case. I mean, we see Pennsylvania and in Michigan and Wisconsin challenging it in their state supreme courts. And the the question always, I think, always that in my mind goes: if if in an ideal world, independent commissions were drawing the lines, how independent are the those individuals on? Is it does the governor um, I mean, the, the, it's it's an interesting question that I think. In heard.
1: our system, it's really. Hard. I mean, it's almost yeah. impossible to de- be defined as independent.
0: There's just be one guy somewhere within that we the we trust. That yeah. everyone yeah. trusts. Like well, Alex, Alex Trebek, really. Right, exactly. Trebek. Yeah. <laughs>
1: like Mr. Rogers, were still alive. He's you know hosting
0: I mean? a um, Mr. Rogers would be crazy. All these <laughs> Pittsburgh references are amazing. But Alex Trebek is hosting or uh, uh, one of the gubernatorial races in Pennsylvania he's oh really yeah he will be the moderator, the moderator that's course, entertaining. which is absolutely the most random thing but i know we're, we're taking that's no, up... okay you're fine i'm just talking about okay um so as as public policy students we of course are extremely idealistic um and a, a lot of us do i'm remember. glad
1: i mean i don't want you entering being you know pessimistic <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be a long road Well,
0: it's, it's a tough time <laughs> it's, there's, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of venom and, and a lot of um, aggression in in today's political discourse.
1: Yeah, I mean, I hope that and I'm sure you are. and I'm speaking in the quieter, but that just you, your classes and your experiences also force you to spend a, time, a lot of time looking at American political history. Yep. Because I mean, we we feel like it's a really terrible time in this country, but we mm-hmm. need to remember, you know, Jim Crow laws and I mean the Civil War and the, I mean there were there were some really really terrible times in this country when. Yeah. You know, we look at what we're dealing with now, and it almost looks civil and reasonable as compared to when we had rioting in the streets and we were forcing people out of schools and we were...
0: There were tanks going down tanks going Pennsylvania down. Avenue 50 years ago. Right, right. and that's so, like, I
1: totally understand that this is a different pace than we've ever seen before, mm-hmm. and there's a different knowledge that the general citizen has that's probably different before because we news was delivered differently. People didn't feel like they had probably the same um, amount of information flow, but I just always like to... Talk to people about you know look we this country's faced really hard times before and has been at a place where they we've seen really really disconnected before, mm-hmm. um, and ultimately we've you know persevered. But I, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't even interrupt you. But yeah, no, no, I, I,
0: I was I was actually just about to wrap up, but I I, I had another question pop in my head, so I'm, i yeah I need to for. ask it. So I'm, I'm so curious. So do you, do you think so? Going going back to the PA 18th, Rick in in a variety of ways tried to imitate. Donald Trump, and he, he called himself Donald Trump of before Donald Trump. And it, do, do you think other candidates, and even like look, looking beyond 2020, do you think other candidates are going to try to imitate his personality, and you think that will be successful? I'm, I'm trying to say, was this a unique recipe that only worked this one time, or do you think?
1: Well, I think the, what was it so, what allowed the president to connect with so many voters, it was that he was authentic. So Rick Saccone shouldn't be Donald Trump, Rick country, should be Rick Saccone. And that, in my opinion, is the answer to these guys. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't say, I agree with the president on X, Y, and Z, and I support his policies on A, B, and C, and I'm going to fight for him and for our shared agenda. But at the same time, the public, in my opinion, the electorate, has a good barometer on authenticity. And they want to vote for someone that they feel like they know and they trust. And when you walk around saying, you know, I'm this person or I'm that person, it's like, no, you're not, Mm -hmm. you're you. And so I really encourage these politicians, and most of them do. I mean, I think Rick Saccone, as we talked about before, isn't a poster child of, um, of what I would call, you know, candidates that uh, we'll like to see moving forward. But I do think that the majority of candidates who run for office understand that the electorate needs to know who they are and be able to trust them. And so you need to, you need to go out there and be confident that um, in your positions and, and what you want to do in your agenda and share that and be transparent mm-hmm. about it. And the electorate's going to sense from you that those are your core beliefs and trust you, or they're not, um, and that's ultimately the beauty—the beauty of the of the American electoral process, right—is that um, everybody gets an opportunity to, to make their own decision.
0: Do you think the the skills that make a good candidate translate to a good official in whatever capacity? Not yep. necessarily. Yeah. Do you think the higher up it goes from because you you've worked on a variety of level of races from senator to governor to the national campaign? Do you think the skills get less and less germane to the role?
1: Oh, I don't know if I think that. I think, um, I think, I think it goes both ways. I think some campaigners aren't great legislators, and I think some legislators aren't great campaigners. Yes. And Hillary
0: Clinton is the first thing that popped my head. Sorry. Yeah. But <laughs> yes. then, Hillary Clinton was yeah, the first yeah, thing that popped my head. Campaign. Right.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'd argue she's not a great legislator either, but um, <laughs> that's my own personal. But you know, I think. That these candidates, look, I mean, the process is the process. It's just like when you're a football player going out there, it's like you got to know the rules and you got to and you play by the rules and you win or lose the game based upon the rules that everyone's agreed upon. Mm -hmm. And people know how elections work in this country. And so, and you know your strengths and weaknesses as a candidate. And so you either go out there and you're able to campaign and then translate it to getting something done to come home or you're not. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that I don't see any correlation between how high the office holder is and their lack of um, skill at either campaigning or policy making. I think just like everyone, people have their strengths and weaknesses as it relates to different policy positions. So you could have a politician that is a good politician and a good legislature on finance, making, and commerce. But if you put them in an immigration meeting, it's not going to be their strength. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think the, what we hope from our leaders is that just like we hope for ourselves and our children and each other is that we all, understand and acknowledge that one of the big strengths is to know what you don't know and to try and further your education constantly and also surround yourself with people that can strengthen your ability to do your job. And so just like a CEO, you're going to know your strength and weaknesses. You're going to hire people around you that, um, help you with your weaknesses. If you're an elected official and you're weak on certain issues or you don't, you know, you need to acknowledge what you don't know and put people around you to do that. But I really don't see a correlation in, in, um, being up or down the ballot, I do tend to see a correlation in terms of, um, what I would, you know, there are some people that are obviously better at state being state officials and being federal officials mm-hmm. and campaigning at a federal level and campaigning at a state level. Mm-hmm. And that's where I see the biggest discrepancy in terms of, you know, people that are good at both or good at one or the other, or that kind of thing. Interesting so
2: I, I think know what you don't know is a great note yeah yeah
1: um,
2: so we just want to say thank you Katie, no for, thank you for, for, talking, for to talking to me and, thanks for um, coming in you know giving us some good insights um you know particularly for many of our listeners may not you know think of the republican party as anything um you know so <laughs> happy that they uh actually hopefully more now yeah know, but may think of it as more having some ideas so nothing else so yeah we really appreciate it
1: yeah. no thank you guys for your time appreciate it good talk thank to you.
2: you yeah of course Thank you for listening to this episode of the GPPR Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more content from the Georgetown Public Policy Review, check out our website at www.gppreview.com, our Twitter at GP Policy Review, or our Facebook, GPP Review. Thank you.